He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. You may be seated. Wow. Isn't it awesome to be together on this Resurrection Sunday to proclaim the truth of the risen Lord? Amen. We are glad that you're here. I do want to say to anyone who may be here for the first time, if you're a guest this morning, we are particularly glad that you're here. We hope that you'll come back. One of the things that you are given on your way in is a, um, uh, a card that tells you what, where we're going in the coming weeks. It's entitled Fake News. That's going to be our next series, Fake News. Let me assure you, it has nothing to do with politics. Uh, this is all about misperceptions about the Christian life, misperceptions about God, misperceptions about the Christian life. We would love for you to come back and to be a part of that series as we look at these uh, debunking the misconceptions about Christianity. Um, right after the service, by the way, if you are new, I would love to welcome you, to greet you personally. I'll be right over in this far corner of the lobby. Please stop by. We'd love to just welcome you to Christ's community and uh, meet you for the first time. I was thinking about this a minute ago when we did the He is Risen thing. I, I might have told this story last year, but I, I love the story. One of our bishops was uh, in a church where he had been um, uh, reaching this one particular young man who had just come to faith not long before Easter. He had been discipling him, but only for a few weeks. And on that very first Easter, he came on that Sunday. And, and as I just did with you, at some point in the service, he proclaimed, He is risen. And before anyone could say anything, this young man jumped up and shouted, You got that right. I love his spirit. He wasn't quite liturgically correct, but uh, I love his spirit. Uh, you got that right. And we are glad today to celebrate the risen Lord. This morning, instead of taking a passage, one passage from Scripture, and fleshing it out about the resurrection, I'd like to tell you the story of resurrection. It's going to be a little bit different, but you know, sometimes we can get so focused on the details of a thing that we forget the big picture. We forget the larger story. And this morning, I want to invite you to rediscover, or perhaps for the first time, to discover the full meaning of resurrection. Now, as with any great story, you don't start at the end, you start at the beginning, right? Resurrection is the climax of the story. Uh, and the fact that it's the climax implies that significant events have taken place before that climax. In fact, the word itself, resurrection, implies that a death has preceded it, right? And if you've heard this story before, you're probably thinking immediately of the cross. This is Holy Week. And on Friday, we gathered to remember Jesus' death on the cross. It would make sense if that's where your mind goes, but I want to actually take you much further back. I want to take you back to a death that occurred long before Jesus was ever born. We have to go back all the way to, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, God, who has never not existed, spoke and brought everything that we know as creation into being. Uh, the sun and the, the moon, the stars, uh, the land and the sea, the plants and the animals. And yes, man 
and woman. It's important to know that all this creative work and energy that we see in the beginning of the story is not because God was lonely. It's not because he was bored and had nothing better to do. In fact, it's just the opposite. God did not create because he was lacking something and needed something to make him complete. God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lived in perfect fellowship, in perfect love, and needed nothing. But it was out of the superabundance of the life and the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God brought forth creation that God spoke everything we know as creation into being. And when it was all said and done, God declared this creation to be good in every way. And it was good. It was gloriously good. Adam and Eve, our our first parents, enjoyed unbroken and untarnished fellowship with God. The Word says that they walked with God in the cool of the day constantly, continuously, and profoundly aware of the presence of God. And and the presence of God that brought not fear and dread, but delight and joy and acceptance. This is the picture we have in the beginning. And their relationship with one another was was very similar. Uh, In the words of the writer, the two became one. They were naked and they were unashamed. They could be utterly transparent with each other because there was absolutely nothing to hide. They, they could be totally authentic because there was nothing to fear. Can you imagine what it would be like to live without fear, without shame, without guilt, no regrets, no insecurities, no baggage. Can you imagine how liberating that would be? And they lived this way in a garden that abundantly supplied them with everything they could ever want or need. God said to them, you can eat from every tree in the garden except one. Everything is here for you. It's a picture of extravagant generosity that reflects the heart of its creator. But into that perfect paradise slithered a villain. There's always a villain, isn't there? And in this case, the villain had been an angel. And not just any angel, but one of the greatest. Satan, as we know him, had been one of God's chief angels. But his desire to be equal with God drove him to rebellion and to rejection of everything God is and has always been. It it makes perfect sense then that that he would try to draw into his own rebellion our first parents, Adam and Eve. He knew full well that God, who is the consummate lover, would never force Adam and Eve to follow him, to, to submit to him. He knew that God had given them a will, and that they had given, and with that will, they even had the right to reject the very one who had given them life. Let's be perfectly clear. That whole temptation thing that took place in the garden was never about an apple. It was pure rebellion. 
Satan drew Adam and Eve into his own delusion to be equal with God. He said, eat from this tree and you will become like God. You will have for yourself the knowledge of good and evil. You'll no longer depend on God to tell you what is right or wrong. You will become your own moral compass and you'll have no need for him. And so they ate. And when they ate, that's when death entered the story for the very first time. God had warned them from the very beginning, eat from this tree and you will die. And death is exactly what they got. Now, I don't mean that their hearts stopped beating. If you know the rest of the story, you know that Adam and Eve have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They live for hundreds of years. But make no mistake about it, they experienced a genuine death in that moment. Because you see, there is a kind of life that is not life at all. And there is a kind of death that is worse than a heart that no longer beats. Adam and Eve experienced spiritual death in that moment and with it their capacity to connect and to relate to the one who is life who is joy who is love who is peace who is everything they had come to know in God's creation all of that was now gone Suddenly, they were completely aware of themselves. Isn't it fascinating that prior to that moment, it's like they didn't even have any awareness of themselves? They lived in complete abandon without insecurities, but suddenly insecurities came flooding in and they began to hide first from each other and then from God. The transparency and the authenticity that had been there before was now replaced by fear and masquerade. Keep reading the story, and just one chapter later, the first murder comes into the story. Read just two more chapters, and you will find that humanity had become so wicked that God was heartbroken. And he said, I am sorry that I ever created man and placed him on the face of the earth. You see, the villain so desperately wants you to believe that the brokenness we now see in this world is somehow a reflection of the nature and character of God. He wants you to look at the brokenness of this world and conclude uh, with the question, how could a good God create this? And yet the truth of the matter is, what we now see, what took place in the garden after that first sin is not a reflection of God's character. It is a testament to the true nature of sin, that everywhere sin exists, there will be destruction, there will be loss, there will be death. But do you want to know the true character of God? Into that darkness, God came searching after the very ones who had just rejected him. God came looking for Adam and Eve, asking the question, where are you? Where are you? And he's been asking that question ever since. In fact, I think it's, it's fair to say that the rest of the Bible is a testimony of how God does exactly what we sang about earlier. 
how God's overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love moved him to come after us again and again and again, to try to bring us back home again. Now, I'm going to get through this next part of the story very, very quickly because it actually takes up almost two-thirds of what we call our Bible. The, the record of the Old Testament is how God began to bring us back into a place of reconciliation with himself. It started when God called for himself or determined for himself that he would have a people. Uh, not a people who were great or deserving because Israel was neither of those, but a people to whom God could show his kindness and mercy. A, a people through whom God said, I will bless the entire world. Secondly, God gave the Israelites, his own people, the law. He wrote the commandments on stone, gave it to Moses. Paul would say hundreds or thousands, actually, of years later, that the purpose of the law was not to save but to expose sin. That's what the law does. The law tells us this is sin, but more importantly, the law exposes the reality that every one of us, you, myself, all of us, are utterly sinful that we are desperately in need of a savior. That's the purpose of the law. But God also gave a, a sacrificial system. This part of the story seems almost uh, foreign to us. It's hard to imagine a sacrificial system, but let me remind you of its purpose. Its purpose was to provide a temporary solution to the ultimate problem of how holy God and sinful man could be reunited. If the penalty of sin is death, then someone or something had to die in order to pay that penalty. In his mercy, God allowed sinful man to sacrifice innocent animals, goats and bulls and lambs or doves, to pay the price of his or her sin. I mean, it was a temporary fix, to be sure. The blood of animals could never truly solve the problem. But this is what it did. Every time the Israelites sacrificed those animals, they were reminded of two things. They were reminded, first of all, of the horror of sin, and secondly, of the costliness of redemption. The costliness of redemption. And then there were the prophets. Long before it ever happened, the prophets saw a new day coming. A day when God would replace the temporary solution with a permanent one. Jeremiah wrote about it in this way. The time is coming when I will make a new covenant in the house of Israel with, and with the house of Judah. I will not be, it will not be like the old covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. They also began to speak of a Messiah who would come 
to accomplish everything that God said he would do in that new day. And then just over 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. John, one of his disciples, it seemed was the first to fully understand the ramifications of what was happening in his coming. John would write sometime later uh, these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John understood that there was a new creation on the horizon, that God was doing something that would go all the way back to the very beginning, and that Jesus was the key to what he was about to do. Jesus was the word that had been with God from the beginning. Jesus was there when God spoke and brought creation into being. Jesus was there when God wrote those commandments on the tablets of stone and gave them to Moses. Jesus was there when he gave them lambs and goats and bulls to pay the price of their sin. And it was Jesus to whom the prophets were looking in everything they wrote. He was there. He was the Messiah. But now he was here. I love the way Peterson translates John 1.14 when he says, The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. John understood that Jesus, though being fully man, was also fully God. And, and John the Baptist saw, when John the Baptist, the first time he laid eyes on him, John saw him and immediately proclaimed, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus spoke often of why he had come. Uh, for example, in Luke 4, he said, um, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He said in Luke 19.10, I have come to seek and save that which is lost. But I believe that the statement that Jesus made that sums up the whole story is found in John 10.10, 10, when Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and that abundantly. But Jesus also knew, just as John the Baptist had seen, that in order to bring that abundant life, Jesus would have to become the Lamb of God. Jesus would have to become the ultimate Sacrifice, Because you see, the problem with those Old Testament sacrifices is that they were animals, not people. They, the, the, the sacrifice was not equivalent to the need. In order for there to be a permanent solution, one who was just like us would have to die in order to pay the price for sin. But it had to be one that was without sin. And so Jesus came and took on flesh just like yours and mine. And he lived and he became the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 2.17 says it this way. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way 
in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus would offer his sinless life to pay for your sins and for mine. And that is what happened on the cross. That's what the cross on Friday is all about. In the story, when it actually happened, the Romans believed they were putting down a political revolution. To them, that's what the cross was all about. The end of another political threat. To the religious leaders of the day, the cross was a way to eliminate a troublemaker who had come uh, to tinker with their traditions. And to Satan, no doubt, the villain No doubt he saw the cross as his ultimate victory. That the very ones whom he had come to save had instead crucified him. Satan must have believed in that moment that God's solution had been rejected. And for two days, all of Rome, all the religious leaders, and yes, Satan and his entire kingdom of darkness must have celebrated wildly. But then came Sunday. But then came Sunday. And Jesus came out of that tomb. Amen? Jesus came out of that tomb and once and for all conquered sin. Do do you see now how what took place on Friday and on Sunday Uh, was really about the the story as a whole, that Jesus was actually restoring everything that had been lost in the beginning of the story. Jesus came to bring life out of death. Jesus came to restore everything that had been lost in the garden. Paul would sum it up uh, in, in Romans 5, 17, when he would say this, for the sin of this one man, Adam, Cause death to rule over men. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Now here's the reason that resurrection is the linchpin of the entire story. Because if Jesus was nothing more than just a good man, then quite frankly, his death was relatively meaningless. Now, what do I mean by that? I want to remind you that there have been good men and women who have given their lives for great causes or or even for the sake of others all throughout history. That one might die for another is something that is a part of our story that is told all, all the time by many, many different people. But if the one who gave his life came out of that tomb on Sunday then he was not just a good man. He was the Son of God, the Word of God that had been with him in the beginning, the one who God had sent to take away the sins of the whole world. But let me ask this critical question. How do we know it actually happened? How do we know that what we come here every year and talk about on this day, resurrection, is not just a great moral story. How do we know that it's not more than just a story? How do we know that it's not a hoax? 
Here we are on April Fool's Day, right? I mean, how do we know that this is not God's cosmic April Fool's joke? How do we know it actually happened? I believe the answer to that is transformation. Because you see, that's what, that's what resurrection is all about. Resurrection is about transforming death into life. It is about transforming darkness into light, hopelessness into hope. Resurrection is all about transformation. And that's exactly what we see in the days following his death and supposed resurrection. If you want to know ultimately why I believe, I mean, I've read all the books that that give all the different reasons that we ought to believe that the resurrection was genuine, but can I tell you the one that means everything to me? The one that means everything to me was the transformed lives of those who followed Jesus for three years, who watched him die on a cross, who immediately went into hiding, but three days later came out and were never the same again. Something happened. I want to remind us that, that, that Peter denied Jesus three times just after he died. Once to a little girl. But three days later, something would happen in Peter, and he would never deny Jesus again. In fact, he would boldly proclaim Jesus, the risen Lord, even to those who had the power to execute him. And ultimately, that's exactly what would happen. Jesus would be executed. Peter would be executed for proclaiming the risen Lord. Or, Or think about Thomas for a moment, doubting Thomas. Thomas had had walked with him, lived with him for three years, saw him die on the cross as well. And when he first heard about the resurrection, Thomas couldn't bring himself to believe because he had not seen with his own eyes. But then there was that moment where Jesus came into the room and Thomas saw and he proclaimed, my Lord, my God. And can I tell you that Thomas never doubted again? Thomas ended up taking the gospel to India where he ultimately died a martyr's death for the sake of the gospel. That's why I believe this is not just a story, that this is the story, the story of all time. This is the great story that sums up the truth of this world and this universe in which we live. Yeah, I think about Paul, for example. I mean, Paul would later on write about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. It's one of those passages that if I was going to preach on a passage, it probably would have been 1 Corinthians 15 because Paul talks about the power of the resurrection. But can I remind you for just a moment that before Paul was Paul, he was Saul, that there was a time in his life when there was only one thing that he wanted to accomplish in his lifetime, and that was to stamp out Christianity to take everyone who followed after this heretical sect and to put them in prison or to put them to death in order to eliminate what was then known as the way, those who followed Jesus. But something happened in Paul's life that would change his life forever. Paul would later, in his uh, years later, would write that he had been beaten, he had been whipped, he had been uh, left for dead, he had been stoned, He had been imprisoned, and he would ultimately give his life as well for the sake of the gospel. What could possibly account for such a transformation? In his own words, Paul said, I was on a road to Damascus. 
I was there to carry out my plans to destroy as many Christians as possible. And then the risen Lord appeared to me. Paul saw the risen Jesus, and it changed his life forever. I want to tell you that I am grateful today that I came to faith when I was a young boy. This is going to be impossible for most of you to believe, but I've been following Jesus for over almost 45 years. I have known him for 45 years, and I can tell you that there is no sweeter friend. There is no greater rock. I want to give testimony today, my own testimony, that I am not the man I would have been had I never named Jesus Christ as Lord in my life. There was a moment when I was uh, an older man, a young, young adult, when God called me to be a pastor. And, and there was nothing in me that believed I could be what God was calling to be. I was scared to death to speak in front of people. I had never done that in my life and couldn't imagine myself doing it. And God spoke these words to me. He said, if you will abide in me and obey me, I will give you everything you need. And I want to tell you that God transformed my life. I wish we had time today because I can tell you that all over this building there are men and women and children who would stand up and say, let me tell you how God transformed my life. Let me tell you how God transformed. That's why on this day billions are gathered all over the globe to give testimony to the risen Lord. Folks, this is not religion. It's not a story. It is reality. Jesus Christ came out of that tomb and in doing so conquered sin and death once and for all. Amen? And I want to say to you as well that this story is also your story. It's also your, your story. Deep down, we all know something is desperately broken in humanity. Broken even in us. I mean, everywhere we look, we see poverty, hatred, violence, abuse, racism. Or we could take it in the complete other direction, empty prosperity. One of the most tragic things I know is to witness the life of one who gains everything he or she ever could have wanted, only to say in the end, it's not enough. I'm still not full. There's still an emptiness here that nothing in this world can fill. I want to tell you this morning that deep down we all know that something within us is broken. We have all experienced that brokenness through our own choices and certainly through the choices of others who have sinned against us. In the words of the song we sang earlier, we have all experienced the tomb and the grave. But this morning, he is calling us out. He is calling us out of the darkness and into his glorious light. Amen? Let me just ask this morning, what does it take, what's required in order to be able to have that life, to be transformed? And let me just say, by the way, that this is not a work that's done in a moment. In one sense, it is. I mean, in one sense, the moment we believe, God declares us to be his own. He says, you are mine, you will always be mine, and I declare you holy because you have put your trust in my son. 
But in another sense, it, it's a work that will continue for the rest of our lives. If you, uh, again, if you could talk to all the people sitting in this room right now, they would tell you, I have experienced transformation and it's still very much in process. We are, we are still being made into his likeness, but it, the work has begun. What's, what's required? What's required? In, in one sense, there's absolutely nothing we can do or need to do because that is the story of Holy Week, of Easter, and of Good Friday, that Jesus has already done everything that is necessary for life and salvation. All we have to do is put our trust in what he has done. But on another level, there is something we must do. If we want to share in his life, we must also share in his death. Jesus once said to a group of people around him these words in Mark 8, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your own cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life, if you die to self, that's another way to say that, for my sake and for the sake of the good news, then you will save it. Do you see now how the story has come full circle? If we want to be restored to life, then we have to walk back through the same door we came out of in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve declared, we want to live apart from you. We want to live our own lives being gods of our own destinies. And in that moment, they died. In order for us to live, we have to go back through the same door, dying to self so that we might be raised to life. And that is the message of the gospel. That's it in a nutshell. I want you to know this morning that God is calling you into his glorious light. I'm going to ask you for just a moment, everyone, if you will, just to bow your heads. Bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want to ask anyone who is here today who has never made that decision for the first time to make it today. I believe with all my heart that God has brought you here for a reason. He brought you here to let you know that the story you have been living is not all there is. There is more. There is resurrection. There is life and love and forgiveness and healing. And if you have never made that decision, then I want to offer you an opportunity to do it right now. With every head down, if there is anyone here this morning that would say, Pastor, I'm ready to make that decision right now. I want to ask you, and you only, to lift your head. Just to lift your head, open your eyes, and I want you to look at me right now. By lifting your head and opening your eyes, you're saying to me, I want to follow Jesus today. I want to accept what he did for me on the cross and what God guaranteed at the, at the tomb on Sunday morning. I want life that is truly life. And if your heads are lifted, 
I want to invite you right now to pray this very simple prayer with me. Would you just repeat this prayer in your own heart? Father God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have failed you. I have experienced the death that comes with not knowing you and following you. But today, I confess my sin. And I ask you to forgive me and to cleanse me, to make me whole and to make me new. I accept today what Jesus did on the cross. And I believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And that he did so not only to destroy the power of sin and death for the world, but that you did it for me. And right now, I accept that sacrifice. I repent of my sin. And I ask you to make me yours. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. I want to remind you, you know, we went all the way back to the beginning of the book, to the beginning of the story. Uh, I think it'd be tragic if I left you, let you leave today without hearing the end, because this is where the story is going. The story is going to a point where God will truly restore everything that has been lost. In fact, some of you may have been sitting here this morning saying, Wait a second, Pastor. I've got one major issue with what you're saying. Jesus died and was raised 2,000 years ago, and there is still death. There is still brokenness. There is still darkness in this world. I want you to understand that Jesus declared that he had come to bring an end to Satan's reign, but that that end would not be complete until he returned. And maybe you're sitting there saying, okay, I get that, but it's been 2,000 years. When is he going to come? How do I know that he's actually going to return? You know, I was thinking about that just this week and just thinking about the, the length of time. And it suddenly occurred to me that this is one of those places where our perception is so radically different from God's. Uh, to illustrate very simply, do you remember when you were six or seven years old? Do you remember how it seemed like it was an eternity to go from one Christmas to the next. It seemed like it would take forever for Christmas to come again. How many of you are over your 40s or in your 50s now? How many of you would say, you mean we just got through, Christmas is already back again? It's already here again? I mean, when, as we live just 40 or 50 years, we begin to get a completely different perspective on time. Can I remind you that God has existed from eternity? That what seems like 2,000 years to us is but a moment in his time? Can I tell you that God, who brought forth his son, will be faithful to come again? It will be just a moment. In the light of eternity, it will be just a moment. And this is where the story ends. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and there was no longer a sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, just as he did in the beginning when he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me for a moment. We're going to sing one final song. I do want to ask those who have a part of the prayer team to make your way up front and to take your place behind the altars here. Let me just say, if there's anyone who is here this morning who is carrying any burden and you want someone to come and pray with you for any reason at all, these people are here, they've been trained, and they're ready to pray for you. I want to say that if there's anyone today who has made a decision for the first time to follow Jesus, would you please, before you're gone, take a moment to fill out one of these cards. They're in the seats right in front of you. Please fill them out because this is the beginning of your journey. We want to walk in this journey with you and help you to walk it well. Let us know, and we want to help you in the days ahead.